0: Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Throughout history, plenty of individuals have found themselves ostracized for having radical ideas, only to later be embraced for those same ideas. It can be uncomfortable to upset the status quo, but testing limits in a responsible manner is one way we can make our profession even better. Dr. Carl Stonecipher believes it's important to be supportive of new ideas because those who are willing to go against the grain a little bit are the ones who will ultimately help this profession advance. Carl is a Clinical Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of North Carolina, and he has a private practice where he specializes in cataract and refractive surgery. He spoke to me about the importance of being open to change and about the bold individuals in the field of ophthalmology who help pave a pathway forward for the rest of us. Coming up on Off The Grid.
1: Ophthalmology off the grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.
0: Welcome back to another very special edition of Ophthalmology off the grid, and I have the distinct pleasure of talking to um, all of our great friend, Dr. Carl Stonecipher. Carl is a giant in the field who needs no introduction. He is a clinical associate professor of ophthalmology at University of North Carolina, and he is in private practice in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, where he specializes in cataract refractive surgery. Carl has been just very active in all sorts of anterior segment surgery. And as Carl and I have gotten to know each other through the years, and even more so um, just prior to this conversation, I realized there's sort of a Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, um, that Carl can, can probably tell better than I can with regard to the real beginnings and pioneering of refractive surgery. And so, Carl, with that that big uh, introduction, uh, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about maybe where and how you got started and fill in the details where they need to be filled in.
1: Well, first, I'm honored to have you a friend and I'm honored to be on the podcast because you got some really great people uh, that have been on this podcast. And those of you that haven't listened to Previous podcasts, go back. There's some really great stories along the way. And the one thing that I want to kind of dovetail in on, Gary, is one that, that I was part of, and that was your recent podcast with Marguerite. And so I will tell my story of how I kind of entered into the world of ophthalmology, uh, blind, so to speak. I was just like Marguerite. I lived a life of uh, myopia that I was undiagnosed. And the funny anecdotal story was when I turned about 11, Uh, My dad, I don't know if you know, uh, signed for the Yankees in 1951. They won the NCAA in baseball, which is kind of poignant now because the College World Series is on. And so, you know, everybody would think, okay, I had this guy's great genes. So there was an all Big Eight uh, conference football player that my dad knew well from Oklahoma, and he was my coach as a little football player. And so anyway, I'm out there playing football, thinking I'm a great football player, and later that night, my my coach goes to my father and says, you know, I hate to tell you this, Stoney, but uh, your son is really bad at football and he really sucks. And I was (laughs) like, you know, I I didn't know the conversation. My dad comes home, tells my mother, well, my mother is totally devastated. So she's not about to have some child that's not uh, athletically inclined with the genes in the pool that we have. And so she took me this guy named Stan Munzler. And, and you know, there, by the grace of God, go I. Stan Munzler is the same guy who gave me my first pair of glasses, gave me my first pair of contact lenses, wrote my medical school admissions letter and wrote my residency letter. And wow. so where that all dovetails in is so I'm an, a medical student at the University of Oklahoma. And my uncle was a, a famous cardiologist in Houston, Texas, who worked with the Bakey and Cooley and all the great heart surgeon, so as a youngster, I got to go watch all these fantastic people do heart transplants and these bypasses and all this crazy stuff. So all along, I thought, well, I didn't want to be a internist, I wanted to be a surgeon, and I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. So fast forward, again, I'm now in medical school in the third year, and I'd done a lot of research in, in college and had paper published and, you know, that sort of thing, and so I thought, well, great, I'm going to be a thoracic surgeon. I better go in and talk to the head of thoracic surgery. Well, I put my grades out. And he said, well, Carl, you're going to make a great surgeon, but I don't think you're going to be a thoracic surgeon because I don't think you have the personality. (laughs) So I don't know if he's being nice or he's being mean, but I thought, well, okay, my life's over. I can't be a thoracic surgeon. And one of my friends suggested I go see this guy named Dr. Jim Rousey who was looking for a research coordinator. And Jim... Yeah, it was at a tough time. He just lost his wife. And so he really kind of needed a shoulder. And I happened to be that. And so he gave me this project, uh, which was counting these little rings and all these little dots. And so anyway, I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And that's where we kind of found computed topography. And Jim was one of the first perk study individuals working with George Waring. And so as a as a senior, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe this ophthalmology thing isn't bad. You get to sit down, like Marguerite was saying, right. uh, when you operate, it's not so hard on your legs and your back. And, you know, I kind of like it because you're kind of the family, you know, practice guy of the eye. So you get to do a little bit of everything, seeing kids and adults and, you know, uh, older patients. So I thought, well, that, this is something I can do. But I really kind of thought, well, shoot, you know, maybe I ought to decide if I really want to do this. So as a senior, I went and did an externship at LSU in New Orleans because the same guy that did my glasses, the same guy that did my contact lenses, set me up with with this guy called Henry Van Dyke, a neuro-ophthalmologist at LSU. And he said, you need to go there. He said, it's a great spot. You'll you'll learn everything. New Orleans is a great spot. So I went down to to New Orleans back in 1986. And Hank knew that I was interested in refractive surgery. And that's when I got to meet Herb Kaufman and this lady named Marguerite McDonald, and I was just some, you know, lowly medical student, but she really took me under her wing and, you know, and said nice things to me and said, you know, come by my practice or my office, you know, anytime. And so I thought, well, gosh, this is a place that I need to be. Well, that didn't work out because I said, well, we're kind of full next year, but we would love to have you the following year. And I just had happened to get in Tulane. And so I thought, well, shoot, Tulane's right here. I share a lot of different stuff. So back in the days of 1987 to 1990, when we were coming to fruition with things like, you know, epi and keratomalusis, and we were working with all these different types of things we called eczema lasers, and we thought, well, wow, this is pretty cool. So I was at Tulane working with this guy named Steve Brent, who had to be this brainiac cataract surgeon, and also got to work with this other great you know, cataract surgeon of the time, Bruce Wallace, and they kind of took me under their wing. And I can still remember I picked up the um, engineers for Summit. So not only did I get to work with Steve Brent, but I also got to go and look at the VizX platform with Marguerite, the time when Marguerite performed the first PRK, you know, as she said serendipitously, because the lady was functionally blind, and mm-hmm. comes back one day and says, oh, by the way, I can see. And Marguerite's like, no, you're 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 really not supposed to see. And everybody was a little bit, you know, you know, stifled by that. And so Herb Kaufman says, you know, we're going to go to the FDA, we're going to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons, and the rest is history. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, back and forth, you know, problems in terms of scathing, you know, comments and literature. And like you said in your podcast, you know, it's a thing of the past, and nobody remembers the negativity. But what I'd like to do in this podcast, with that, that is kind of a backdrop is, how do we decide Marguerite was a pioneer, and at what level did she go from being a pioneer to a buccaneer? And I've read this awesome book called The Butchering Art by Lindsay Fitzherris. and and I strongly encourage anybody that, that's in medicine or wants to be in medicine, read it. It's about medicine in the 1800s before anesthesia and antimicrobials. Wow. So you, you got to imagine there is not a whole lot that can be done at this particular time because if you had surgery you died from disease and sometimes if you had surgery you died from the surgery so we're here at this point in the early 1800s and this famous surgeon who thinks he's the best in the world performs an an amputation in like under three to four minutes which is just absolutely incredible which he you know removes the leg he sews the vessels he sews the stump. All in under four minutes, which is like, you know, running a four-minute mile at, you know, this time. But the sad part about it, the the procedure had a 300% mortality. The patient died from from disease. The medical student watching the the process got clipped with the knife. He died from disease. And last but not least, the technician who was working on the leg or holding the leg got clipped with the knife. And he died from an infection as well. So here we had this great surgery but a 300% mortality. So everybody still thinks this guy's great, and this guy named Lister is really an idiot, and he doesn't really know what he's talking about. And why would somebody want to use a microscope? So at what point do we get to the to the level where this other guy's kind of the one that's not the great surgeon, and Lister is the guy that's, you know, making groundbreaking molds in terms of, you know, what we call agent today. And we go back. I mean, it can go across different cu- cultures. I mean, we look at like Einstein. And I don't know if you remember Einstein's story was this guy's this genius, but everybody thinks, okay, you know, I don't really believe this. And there's this guy named Eddington in England that says, well, you know, that makes kind of sense to me. So he goes down and looks at this thing we call an eclipse and proves Einstein's right. And, you know, basically, Eddington isn't really remembered and Einstein remembered forever. So I think that, you know, we stand on these shoulders of giants. And for me, they're people like Marguerite and Steve Kleiss, Marguerite McDonald, Steve Kleiss, and Jim Rousey and the guy that gave me my, you know, first job, Del Caldwell, who kind of said, "Okay, you sound like you know what you're doing. So if you want to go do some research, you can. And, you know, all these guys that we work with every day, you and I don't realize how much they've, you know, done for us, whether it's George Waring or Dick Lindstrom or a lot of these guys paved a lot of pathways, you know, in in the old days, when we look at radial keratotomy, you know, there's this guy, Lon's in the 1800s, who Decides he's going to make incisions in the cornea and looks at that, and then there's this guy Saito that is well, familiar with the work, but unfortunately he works from the endothelial, yeah, the endothelial side. Yeah, and he forgets there's he didn't really know there were endothelial cells, and he got the highest honor in Japan, only to find out 15 years later all his patients went blind from their endothelial dystrophy that he had created. And then you know we move through the process of Vetteroff and, and all these other different people. That, you know, a lot of people thought all those guys and gals were, you know, basically buccaneers as I label them. And then at some point we look back at Charlie Kelman, who was ostracized by his entire community. He was thrown out of all these different societies. And finally one day somebody says, Oh no, that guy's a, a pioneer. Ridley, same thing, thrown out of all this, you know, Royal Society and, and everything that, that he was a part of. And here's a guy that really invented the way we do. You know, modern cataract surgery, maybe not the same, you know, technology, but definitely the same ideas and ideals. So with that as a backdrop, I think in this present day and age, what I'd like to discuss with you is where are we going with refractive surgery and and what are we going to end up on the other side? And I think that you know the cornea is a great spot, but lately inside the eye has been a great spot. And so you know, we, we've seen a lot of advances in technology with presbyopia, and, and we really want to make it to where people see what they, well, saw on their glasses or contact lenses, and we're, we're at the 2015 or better level in terms of outcomes with LASIK. But, you know, when we get these patients with this, what we, you know, term the dysfunctional lens syndrome, at what point can we say to that patient, you know, this cataract surgery, or what we're going to call refractive lensectomy, is a good thing. And so in 1991, I still remember I ran into this famous guy named Yanni Policaris and, you know, walked up to him at Arvo uh, and, and said, you know, you guys are doing this really cool stuff. And you know, I really don't believe in hyperopic, you know, refractive surgery of the day. and And I don't think making incisions is the right thing. And I don't think that, you know, cutting the cornea really deep and producing this, what we call clinically controlled ectasia or hyperopic you know, ALK was the right way to go. And he said, oh, Carl, I said, the simple thing to do is work inside the eye. And it was just like, you know, being a light bulb goes off in my head. But you know, I go back with that thought and everybody says to me, oh my gosh, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. So now fast forward, you know, 27 years later, and, and it's it's more of a common statement. And we're even thinking about doing it bilaterally. So in the great state of North North Carolina, we can't do that. But in the great state of California, you can do bilateral surgery, and I, I can still remember when, you know, I started doing bilateral, you know, LASIK back in 94, 95, in the CRS LASIK study, and people were like, you're really operating on both eyes, and, you know, you're an idiot for doing that in the first place, because these are normalized and sighted eyes, and so, you know, where do we where do we find out that, you know, what we think is right is best for our patients, and I go back to my cardiologist uncle and his comment was very simple if you would do this to a family member your mom your dad your brother your sister you're probably gonna be you know okay right. in the big picture and and if that's what you believe in and that's what you're good at I think that that you're gonna find that whatever that is it will pan out in the end or somebody will look at you and say Gary Carl you know I know this is a great idea and I know you got some great you know, research on it but I'm gonna patch on the back and say let's move forward to something different. So if we look at presbyopia at the present time, we know monovision's great. Alan Faulkner and I have produced some good research on that and presented that data in terms of, you know, where people should be maybe after cataract surgery or refractive lensectomy before we had really good lenses. And again, you know, these people that I talk about, like Bruce Wallace and Dick Lindstrom and Steve Brent, you know, I watched them suffer through the 3M multifocal lens and some of these other options that, you know, Jim Gills and some of these other great surgeons tried for us before. And then we finally get to where we are today, where we're, we're actually producing lenses that maybe don't accommodate to the appropriate level, but the patient can accommodate to the technology and it works extremely well for them. I tell my, right. my, my favorite anecdotal story was so I'm armed with this new thought process about, you know, Yanni Polycarus and, and his buddy saying, you know, you ought to go home and try refractive lensectomies on all your hyperopic patients. And the first guy, just lucky as can be, just like Mrs. Cassidy with Marguerite, says to me, you know, hey, um, I'm here. And he was a plus nine with three and a half doctors of astigmatism. So I said, you know, look, I got good news and I got bad news. He said, OK, I've been there before. He said the good news is technology is going to come. And he said the bad news is, is. He didn't hear yet. And I said, well, no, no, sir. Wait just a second. Let, let me tell you the good news is the technology is here. The bad news is I, 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 you know, it's very expensive. And he's like, I didn't know the guy just sold his company for about $120 million. And he said, I got money. So, so that's like, not a great. problem. Nope.
0: The, the money is great. not a problem at this, at this point.
1: Here, here's my Mrs. Cassidy and God rest his soul. He just died last year and probably referred, you know, over 60 or 70 patients to me, which he, he paid for their surgery. And thereby thereby the grace of God go out, while we say that, you know, everything turned out perfectly. I did astigmatic incisions with a diamond blade. I did uh, the best, you know, small incision, no stitch cataract surgery at the time I could do. And, and for the rest of his life, this guy, it was a new world for him. And people don't realize until you hear a story like Marguerite's, you know, how devastating it is to be that nearsighted or farsighted and how confined your world can be in terms of that. So I think that, you know, with technology, as we're going through today, and I mean, you get to see it here every day, because you're grabbing the brainiacs of the world of glaucoma or retina, and they're coming up with all these phenomenal ideas. But, you know, sometimes it takes a few, you know, a, a village, let's say, or a few people to look at Gary and say, Hey, Gary, that's a great idea. Once you go see if you can do it, you know, collect your data, And if the data is good, then then it's going to stand on its own. And the person that taught me better than anybody is Dan Dury in terms of collecting data. And Dan's just like a phenomenal data collector. And I can still remember early on, he'd look at me and he'd go, okay, Carl, that's a great study. But, you know, it it really doesn't count. And I was like, well, no, I followed the rules. You know, I did the (laughs) investigative review board thing. And he goes, yeah, but until you do one eye this way and one eye that way, you know, it, it probably doesn't count. He said, you know me, I'm kind of a contralateral eye guy. And I was like, okay, well, you know, you can't always do that. And he said, I know, but when you can, try, as long as you don't think you're, you know, doing something too avant-garde. And so we, we look at these people, whether they're Spencer Thornton or, you know, some of these guys like Sinski and, and Mizako. I happen to have the opportunity to be in the Triple I C club. So I have a lot of these Major brains that I get to eat dinner with twice a year. And, you know, a lot of people, it's like going and sitting with your grandfather and hearing these great stories in ophthalmology. And every single one of these people will tell the same story. You know, I was ostracized by my peers. Many people looked at me and said, you know, this is not the right thing to do. You're going down the wrong, you know, rabbit hole. I think that, you know, we look now at some of the Technologies that have gone by the wayside that at the time we thought they were the best thing in the world. So, you know, I did probably over 20,000 radial keratotomies and I was very proud and I'm still very proud of that procedure. But those patients are doing what now? They're walking through the door with their cataracts. Right. And so, right. we've got to listen to the Jack holidays and the, and the Warren Hills and the Doug Cokes of the world and try and figure out how we best fit with our new technology. You know, and get these guys back whole because I think that, yeah, we make mistakes all, all along. You know, I always say experience means you've done it wrong before. And so, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all have, have done it altruistically thinking wrong. And like Marguerite used the term over and over again, serendipitously, sometimes we walk through the raindrops. But I think, you know, the one line that I always remember, Jim Rousey used to always say to me, if I give it to you, you can't steal it. So, you when we're when we're trying to exchange ideas today, the problem we have is intellectual property, and somebody's always saying, you know, I've got to make a buck off this, or I've invested, you know, my life savings in this, and I understand that, but I would hope that we as as individuals would be able to walk to Carl or Gary and say, you know, I don't, I've been down that road before, and and it's not going to lead you anywhere, but if you think about it this way, and you come over to my house and let me show you how I'm doing it. I think that's great. And and I encourage all the young residents and surgeons, I've got two coming to see me tomorrow, uh, that'll walk and look over my shoulder and they'll say, wow, you do it that way, don't you? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I really didn't know I did it this way. I, I really didn't learn it on my own. I watched a lot of people and I watched a lot of videos and I talked to a lot of people and I stood you know, there waiting patiently at the end of the lecture and would ask my questions, which I, you know, most of the time are probably stupid to the person I was asking them, but I, I always would, you know, do it politely. And I think that most of these individuals you'll see will look at you and say, you know, maybe I'm busy right now. I'm running off to, you know, a, a talk or or I've got to get to dinner with my wife or something. But hey, here's my card. Call me or my email, email me. And, you know, follow that stuff up because I think that's how, you know, you and I our our DNA is made that way. I mean, I know you're a friend of mine, but I think that not everybody's that way in terms of this big process. And the other thing I tell the residents, you know, you have one moment in time to do everything and that's during your residency. So when they call you on call and say, I got an open globe, or I got a lid laceration, or I got some, you know, really messed up eye, you look at that not as a oh, gosh, I get up at two o'clock in the morning, got to go fix it. You look at that as an opportunity to try and make somebody see, which, you know, maybe or maybe not you can. But, you know, I was lucky to train at, you know, probably one of the, you know, war zones of the world, which was Charity Hospital in New Orleans. And we saw just amazing stuff. But out of that came what? Phenomenal advances. And I will tell you, anyone from World War One, which I don't know, but two and three, you know, two in, in, in and and Korea and Vietnam, I definitely have spoke to many of those surgeons, and they say they learned more on the battlefield many times than they did, you know, back home in the university. Right.
0: So let me unpack a couple of things because you brought up a, a multitude of uh, just amazing points. But um, it, it is interesting as we in you know the year 2018 look back on the history of ophthalmology. Uh, most of the most phenomenal advancements have always been fought tooth and nail by the status quo, and the one of the questions I would have, because you've you've seen this, I guess maybe through a couple of iterations of change. One question would I would have for you is: Do you think that we, as a society of ophthalmologists, are getting better? at accepting you know game changers or disruptive change or do you feel like as a society we still suffer from the don't move my cheese type of issues that have plagued us in the past
1: I think you have societies and groups that are now bounding you know binding themselves together so I think Cedars Aspen is a group that is out there and trying to say okay look we have some you know newer opportunities and ideas let's see how we can change that world. And I think there will always be, you know, the more tried and true methodology, the typical, you know, surgeon mentality that says, no, this is how I was trained. And I'm going to stick with what I'm trained because it's worked great for me. And and I think that's fine. I just think that the real game changers are the people that stick their necks out. And, and I tell you another anecdotal story. I just happened to be speaking for the West Virginia Ophthalmologic Sci- Society, and I'm talking on how to make one eye at a time see better, you know, in terms of 20, 15 or better vision. I've got this guy, Dean Elliott, that gets up and starts talking about how they're creating this biological gooey that they're sticking under the retina and curing, you know, labors you know, blindness in a kid that's like eight years old who couldn't ride his bike anymore, and now he can ride his bike again. Right. Now, when you look at that, and you're talking about LASIK or, you know, laser floater removal, which is pretty controversial now, and you you sit there and you go, okay, you know, my question was, okay, Dr. Elliot, Dean, tell us, how much does it cost to cure blindness? And he's like, well, it's, you know, 500,000 to 700,000 U.S. dollars per dose, So we got to look at the cost of Madison, too. But boy, you know, they 3D printed a cornea the other day. So in late term, they put in red, green and blue ink, endothelium, epithelium and And stroma stroma. (laughs) and created a cornea. Now, you know, we're a bit off before you're going to stick that in an eye, probably. But, you know, these guys that are out there doing, you know, at all costs and and granted, they're going to need reimbursement for those investments. And I still never will FDA bash. I just say that, you know, we'd like to see these processes move a little bit quicker, but I understand the stringence there too. But I think you're always going to have somebody standing in the way, which is the little red engine that couldn't. And I think that somebody's always going to say to you, it's, it's, I, I, you know, I highly admire him. Steve Charles is one of my heroes. Same. He has always been one of my heroes. I've always thought he was one of the smartest brains in the world. Agreed. But I do laser, you know, floater removal, and he thinks, you know, that is, you know, pretty bad thing to do in this normal vitreous and this normal, you know, process. But I work with, you know, six great retina surgeons. Um, most of them send patients to me and say, hey, Carl, why don't you try this laser floater removal thing first? Uh, and... You know, if it doesn't work, they can always have the opportunity of having what?
0: Yeah,
1: patrectomy. A vitrectomy. Yeah. But they'll all look at me and they'll say, Carl, if this is a phagic person, I'm going to create a cataract. So not only going to get rid of their floater, I'm going to give them a cataract and you're going to come to you to get their cataract surgery. So I think we all have to see the forest for the trees. And, and I tried to have that conversation with, with Dr. Charles about... Laser float removal, but that's kind of one of those things that you know Marguerite ran into with eye that that basically said, you know, you're 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 off the rails. You're not thinking right. Why would you want to operate on a normal eye that you could put minus eight lenses on? But but I tell you, the best thing that that we did at Tulane it was the first week or two we were doing our optics lectures. You know, the first month at Tulane. I don't know if you did this. We had all science. And so the professors came in and taught us basic science. And the best thing I saw was one of the professors made us wear minus 20 contact lenses on and put on plus 20 lenses. And then he had this all made up. And then we had like just the opposite, plus 10 lenses on and wear minus 10 glasses. And so it was absolutely you know, learning jack-in-the-box phenomenon and, you know, all this pincushion and right. minification and magnification for real. And then the other one that, that I'll never forget is they, they taped our eyes shut, completely shut. So one day you were my partner and the next day I had another partner and uh, we all went around either blind or sighted. And so, you know, you and I would be partners so you wouldn't run me into walls and stuff right. and think that was funny because you knew I was doing the same thing to you the next day. But boy, it was amazing how you were treated being blind and how your other senses came to fruition. So I think with that, we got to kind of take away some of our short-sightedness and start thinking outside the box. You know, if somebody comes up with a, a, a program, let's see where we're at. And, and one of the other programs that I always recommend is at the American Academy of uh, Ophthalmology. They always do this vision through the eye of the artist. And it's Machamer, and I'm not Machamer, but I'm um, blocking out of Stanford, the uh, the head of Stanford right now. And he always gives this great lecture about all these famous painters who, you know, at the beginning, they thought they were, you know, kind of crazy, like Picasso or, or Matisse and all these other different people. And now we look at them and say, oh, my gosh, wouldn't I love to have one of those?
0: Right, right. Absolutely. I want to I also talk about, I think, one of the biggest focal points that you brought up is, is really lens-based refractive surgery. Um, I want to give you a scenario of a patient that I took care of, actually, I've had two of these patients in the past couple of months. patient came into me in her mid-30s, so not even presbyopic yet. Um, she was, I mean, I've got actually have her, her her details up right. She was a plus 750 minus 650 in the right eye and a plus 5 minus 575 in the left eye. Uh, correctable to 2030, 2025, a little bit of refractive amblyopia. And this is a patient who is highly educated. She is, I believe, a nurse, but is no longer able to drive because she's become contact lens intolerant and her glasses... Uh, with the optical um, effects of her glasses, she does not feel comfortable driving. Uh, she's single, she's having a hard time socially, um, just feeling like she's being left out of a lot of things in life. And she came to me after seeing a number of different ophthalmologists and optometrists, specialty contact lens fittings, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, she was at the end of her rope and she just asked me if there was if technology had advanced and if anything could be done at this point. I, I have to say I'm really thankful to industry for having the opportunity to have uh, multifocal and extended depth of focus lenses that are also in toric form. And I won't mention the brand of the lens I use because I think that really all of these category of lenses can can be very helpful. But I went ahead, and after a long conversation with her and her family, I, I, I said, you know, we can't do LASIK on you, but what we can do is we can do laser refractive lens-based surgery, where we're gonna put this, um, you know, this lens that has a range of vision with correction of uh, stigmatism, and, and because those lenses don't go up that high, I, was ha- I had to add two 60-degree arcs on top of uh, the toric lens, and I did that in both eyes, and this patient is actually uncorrected, 20-25 in both eyes. And when she came back for her post-op exam, she and her mother were both in tears because it was the best she'd ever seen in her life. And her mother was carrying this guilt around for so many years about having this child that she just could not help. And for me, you know, we all have these patients that... On the negative side, that, you know, perhaps we we remember because they were 2020 and ungrateful or some something of that sort. But it's these really special patients that I carry. I try to carry with me where I think you know we we won, and thanks to the confluence of technology, both the laser side and lens side, and being a little bit bold, uh, we were able to to help that patient, and that meant so much to me to see how it really impacted her quality of life. And that's just, I guess, one example in my personal life uh, where, where doing exactly what you said made such a huge difference in, in one patient's life. What are, what are your thoughts about
1: that? Well, I kind of laugh the way you, you present that. Uh, I don't know if you ever remember the movie, The Big Chill. Yeah. And The Big Chill said, rationalizations are better than sex. When did you go a whole week without a good rationalization? <laughs> so you had to rationalize to yourself, okay, how can I make it okay for me to operate on this person who is a miserable and be functionally blind in our world, not right. her world, our right. world. Right. And so, you know, you have to come up with a good rationalization to yourself. And I'm hoping there's going to be a day where we don't have to rationalize that. We can say to the kid I just had, I was laughing here quietly because I had a minus 24 with six doctors a cylinder come in from his parents, exact same story, said this kid can't wear contact lenses, he lives in our basement, he has no job, he has no girlfriend, he, he does nothing but play video games all day, and he essentially has, you know, no driver's license, no life. And so, you know, I sent him off to, I usually will pick, you know, a few retina surgeons in the community, try and tell them what I'm trying to do, and I think that's very important. And there's always going to be guys that say, no, 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 you know, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to let you. You know, be a part of that or whatever. And I'm okay with that. And I said, okay, but I want to try and give this person the best shot. So I'll have them go see my retina colleague, and if my retina colleague says they got a retinal hole or tear, they'll fix it and you know work through it. And CP Wilkinson, somebody I trained under, probably a lot of the data on you know when and where to to laser these people and when and where not to you know, do surgery on them, and that was back in the late 80s and early 90s, and, and so I think fast forward now with newer technology and newer views, of the retina, heck, now most of my retina surgeons probably don't even pick up a 20 diopter lens. They just look at the video or the picture, you know, and the 3D OCT and just basically say, okay, yeah, now I got to look at the, you know, the periphery to, to fix it, and, and then I have two surgeons that will actually look at me and say, Carl, you know, you shouldn't go in this eye. There's no reason to go in this eye, and unfortunately, we have to look at this individual, you know, every now and then, whoever that may be, and say, you know, look, let's try another avenue. Maybe you hadn't tried this contact lens, or maybe you haven't tried that, you know, form of of visual aid or correction. And so sometimes, some of these people that can't go down those roads, you know, you'll get them fit in a scleral lens uh, because no one's ever tried a scleral or synergy lens in them. but. But, you know, I, I think it, it goes back to just thinking outside the box. So about three years ago, maybe four now, and I haven't done a lot, but I've done enough to publish a series. And, and whenever I do a series, I, I, I used to usually have to have somewhere between 20 and 30 in my bag of tricks. And I've got to have at least a year or two follow-up. So I started looking at a lot of these pellucid marginal generation patients that had failed contact lenses. That's important because I think they see probably better in their contact lenses. Right. And they came to me and, and their glasses weren't working in their world or our world. And I said, OK, look, I now have these lenses that go up to T9 and maybe they won't eliminate your astigmatism, but they can reduce it. And and we have done several of these pellucid marginal generations with a definable axis. And Jack Holiday will kind of go through that on the Pentacam, what's a definable axis and what's not a definable axis, whether that's post-radial keratotomy and you're trying to fix your astigmatism, or in these pellucid patients, and I've had many pellucid patients that I've done now uh, that are like these refractive patients. They're like, Carl, I have never seen this good in anything in my entire life. I remember one guy ended up, you know, minus one plus three, minus one and a half plus three. It was essentially plano. And I said, "Okay, well, let me get you glasses." And he goes, "I don't want glasses." And I said, "Well, you know, I, I could maybe then get you contact lenses at this level. And I don't want contact lenses. I'm like, "Well, well, are you okay?" And he goes, "This is the best I've ever seen. I'm afraid you're going to mess me up if you give me glasses. <laughs> so you know, sometimes getting close to perfect in some of these patients is even pretty spectacular. So going back to this kid who went blind from labors, well now he's not, 20. 20. But he's probably 2080, maybe 2100 and can ride a bike again. And that's pretty fantastic medicine. And I think, you know, with 3D printed corneas and some of the crazy stuff, you know, we never thought we we're going to stick a needle in the eye with this Avast and stuff and stop or halt or, you know, make Reverse. people hold on to their, their vision in terms of, you know, age-related macular generation. And I think, you know, if we just step back and think outside the box – and I always think to Australia, I love the term I use, or my, my patients tend to think it's funny. I say, you know, there's always going to be a tomorrow, because it's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and, because Australia is such a small community, their FDA can get things through the pipelines a lot quicker. So they go down to T2 on their astigmatic lenses, and they go higher than our astigmatic lenses. And so I think that at some point in time, we're going to get there to where... We can expedite some of these things, whether it's, you know, through, through a cognitive need or uh, a concern need. I think that the FDA will, will kind of start thinking outside the box because I operated on a lady that uh, was at Quintalis, which they just changed their name, and, and I said, have you seen anything really crazy lately? And she said, the craziest thing I ever saw the FDA do recently was we were doing an immunotherapy study versus chemotherapy in cancer and she said i can't really go into the details of it but he said the immunotherapy worked so well the fda called us up stopped the arm of chemotherapy because the patients were dying and all the immunotherapy patients were living and said we're going to do this now you still got to follow it for the three to five years but everybody gets immunotherapy because it's so different in the old days that would have never happened
0: well, maybe that's a uh, that's a sign of of uh, a sea change at the FDA, which we could only um, really uh, all welcome. So, well, Carl, thank you so much for giving hey. us a little bit of the backstory, the rest of the story, and your points, your salient points about. Um, pushing the envelope in a responsible way and encouraging folks to try to make a profession even better than it already is. Um, I can't thank you enough for being such a uh, encouragement to me personally, but also to all the folks listening tonight. So Carl, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
1: And like I said to you, I'm honored to be on here and thanks for having me on.
0: Anytime you want to come back, open invitation. All right. Thank you, sir. Many of the most extraordinary advances in ophthalmology have been fought against by those who wanted to maintain the status quo. As we look ahead to the future, it's important to remember those in the past who had the courage to think outside the box. We can all benefit from being open to new ideas because they might be the ones that change the game. This has been Ophthalmology Off The Grid. Thanks for listening.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.